Today's scripture reading is Mark 1, 9-13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In his book, Blue Like Jazz, Donald Miller tells the story of a Navy SEAL covert operation that was put into place to rescue some hostages from a bad situation. And the SEAL team flew in by helicopter and made their way to the compound and stormed into the room where the hostages had been imprisoned for months. The room was filthy and dark, and the hostages were curled up in a corner, terrified. When the SEALs entered the room, they heard the gasps of the hostages. They, they stood at the door and called to the prisoners and told them that they were there to rescue them and that the hostages should follow them, but the hostages would not follow. They sat there on the floor and hid their eyes in fear. They weren't in a healthy mental position and they didn't believe their rescuers were really rescuers. So the seals stood there and they didn't know what to do because they couldn't possibly carry everybody out. But one of the seals got an idea. He put down his weapon, he took off his helmet, and he curled up tightly next to the other hostages, getting so close that his body was touching some of theirs. He softened the look on his face, and he put his arms around them to show them that he was one of them. None of the prison guards would have done this. And he stayed there for a little while until some of the hostages started to look at him, finally meeting his eyes. Then the Navy SEAL whispered that they were there to rescue them. Will you follow us? The SEAL stood to his feet and then one of the hostages did the same and then another until all of them were willing to follow the seals out of that prison. The story ends with all of the hostages safe on an American aircraft carrier. As pastors, we never quite know what it sounds like in a person's ears when they hear the call to follow Jesus. Maybe it sounds overly demanding. Maybe it has a, a negative ring to it because of bad church experiences. But how would you hear it if the God of heaven entered into your prison, stripped himself of his royal dignity and rights, and got down into the muck and mess of your struggles and weaknesses to come near to you to rescue you? What if you heard the call to follow coming from him. 
what do you imagine a life of following him would be like? Today, we're going to talk about the life of following Jesus. And we're going to see that this life of following Jesus is a life of identification. It's a life of consecration. It's a life of affirmation. And it's a life of temptation. So let's look at our first point where we see that the life of following is a life of identification. And I, and I want to make one quick point at the very beginning of this series. It's important for us to understand that this theme of, of following Jesus in the Gospel of Mark has a particular uh, shape to it. It, it. it doesn't mean that we create our own way of following, that we get to make it up as we go along, or we get to specialize it according to our own whims. Rather, it means that we must closely observe the life of Jesus who sets the course for his followers. By observing his life, we are able to discern the depth and, and the different dynamics that are involved in being a follower. And that's an important part to make. So as you see Jesus, he's not only the, the one we follow, but he's actually the paradigm of what the life of a follower should look like. Let's look at this first point now, beginning in verse 9. Check, check it out. Look at verse 9. And I want you to imagine that you're outside the city of Jerusalem and you're present at the banks of the Jordan and you're surrounded by a multitude of people. Everyone's trying to get a glimpse of this man, John the Baptizer. And you're, you're waiting your turn to be baptized. And you, you heard this, this John the Baptizer preaching not only about repentance, but, but you heard him preaching about this coming one. But today, as you wait your turn to be baptized you see John turn his attention and he sees someone approaching and he is awestruck. And then he declares of this one approaching, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you observe this figure come forward to John to request baptism. Now, for everyone else, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And we learned this last week in Pastor Duke's sermon. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And this is why John recoils when Jesus comes to him for baptism. Because John is, is likely thinking, I, I just announced you as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How am I going to baptize you? The people, the text tells us, went out to John, were baptized, and then confessed their sins. So why was the sinless Son of God coming to John to be baptized? Here's the deal. When Jesus was baptized by John, his was a baptism of identification. Jesus submits to John's baptism, and his is a confession not of his sin, but of his love 
because he's identifying with the sinners he came to save. My systematic theology professor from seminary, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, uh, says this in comment about this text. Quote, Here already, Jesus indicates how he will become our Savior. By standing in the river in whose waters penitent Jews had symbolically washed away their sins, and allowing that water polluted by those sins to be poured over his perfect being. End quote. That's the picture. Jesus identified with sinners. And this, this means something for those who would follow Jesus. You must understand that to follow Jesus is not just to identify as a sinner who needs repentance, like we heard last week, it is to identify with sinners. It is to look on your fellow image bearers with grace and humility and compassion and the capacity to put yourself in their place, regardless of how royally they have failed, regardless of how wrong they have been, regardless of how much ruin and misery they've created by their bad decisions. Jesus' followers don't sit in self-righteous judgment over their neighbors. Jesus' followers don't revel in the downfall of their neighbors. Jesus' followers don't dance on the graves of their neighbors. Jesus' followers identify with their sinful neighbors and are moved by their plight. Jesus didn't dance on your grave. He emptied it. And if you find yourself doing these things, it's not Jesus you're following, but something else. In the baptism of Jesus, we see a life of identification and a prelude of what is to come throughout the rest of the story of Mark's gospel. But following Jesus is also a life of consecration. Take a look at verse 10. Verse 10 tells us that when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. In this outpouring of the Spirit, Jesus is consecrated or dedicated or set apart to fulfill his ministry. God here empowers him to fulfill the mission that he has given to him. And if you search the usage of this consecration language in Scripture, it's most frequently used with reference to the priesthood. Priests were consecrated, set apart, or dedicated to their priestly work. And this suggests that we should expect a priestly significance in the life and ministry of Jesus that is going to develop through the rest of Mark's Gospel. And this consecration is such an important detail. We shouldn't overlook it. This consecration is important. It's important because this is the very confirmation that Jesus is HaMeshach, the Messiah, the Anointed One. It's important because the line of anointed prophets, priests, and kings converge here on Jesus as he takes up his mediatorial office. It's also important because we see here that even the Son of God, in His humanity, needed the outpouring of the Spirit in order to fulfill His earthly ministry. 
Even the Son of God didn't do it in his own strength. It's important because it marks the dawning of the new age which will sweep over the old. And all of the prophets spoke of the age of the Spirit that was to dawn and the the renewal that was to come. And this is why you'll hear Jesus later in another gospel step up in the synagogue, grab the, the scroll of Isaiah and read chapter 61 and say, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And so on and so forth. His is a consecrated life set apart for this ministry. And finally, it's important this consecration, it's important because this text gives us a sense of the magnitude and the glory of what it means for God to have poured out His Spirit upon His people. And yes, just as it was for Jesus, our consecration carries a priestly significance as we navigate the world. You have to know that Pentecost was not some small and insignificant event in the life of the church. We've scarcely imagined the moral and ethical power that has been implanted in our lives through the indwelling spirit. Power to make the most difficult sacrifices. Power to render the most honorable service. Power to offer the most persistent prayers. Power to offer the most costly love. Power to swallow the most hurtful words we would shoot at others. Power to bear witness to peace in an age of violence. Power to bear witness to truth in an age of lies. Power to break the chains of narcissism and self-interest to spread His glory and goodness around the world. He has poured out His Spirit on us so that we can give away love and grace like we're made of the stuff. Power. The Spirit has been planted in our lives in order to reproduce the beauty of the life of Christ. The same beauty that the Spirit produced in the life of Jesus is the beauty that He wants to produce in us. He wants to clone the heart of Jesus in us so that we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, so that we think the thoughts of Jesus, so that we relate to others like Jesus related to others, so that we engage the world in a cruciform way like Jesus. Don't you ever sleep on the power of the indwelling spirit in your life, Christian. Mark is going to show us through the rest of this book just what the spirit is able to do with a human life that he consecrates. The life of following Jesus is a life of consecration, but it's also a life of affirmation, which brings us to verse 11. Mark tells us that after the Spirit descended upon Jesus, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now traditionally, these words have been understood as combining phrases from Psalm chapter 2 verse 7, which says, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. And Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, which says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. So you see this coming together of sonship and servanthood. God's voice 
declares that Jesus is his son. Added to the testimony of John the baptizer to the identity of Jesus, we get the testimony of the father to his identity. And he is the son of God. One thing is clear beyond doubt. Jesus here is explicitly identified in the terms used in Mark's heading, Huias Theu, Son of God. Now, in the narrative, in the rest of the story that follows, there's going to be some secrecy. There is going to be some paradox. But here in the prologue, there is an open declaration of the identity of Jesus. And regardless of how the characters in the story will react to Jesus, the reader of this gospel doesn't need to be in doubt of this fact, according to Mark, the evangelist. Here is Jesus, affirmed by the Father as he walks in obedience to the mission for the recovery of the world. And a crucial point that I have to raise is that we have just witnessed in this series of texts the Trinitarian presence of God in Scripture. Did you see it? The Father sends the Son to be baptized. The Son receives that baptism, and the Holy Spirit is sent from the Father to descend upon the Son. This frames this whole coming work of salvation as, as Trinitarian, the work of salvation is to be understood as the work of Father, Son, and Spirit, partnering together for our redemption, singing in harmony, as it were. The, the work of salvation is a work of unity and diversity. And there's, there's so much to say about the Trinitarian implications of this passage, but we got to keep moving. This fatherly affirmation, this this joyful declaration over Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is holy ground, y'all. It is to mean everything for the Christian, and it's one of the things that sets Christianity apart from other religions. Now, let me explain that a bit. You've probably heard evangelical Christians talk about the idea that the Christian faith is about a personal relationship with God. And though this is true, It can be somewhat vague. What do you mean by that exactly? But this passage sharpens the focus on that idea of a relationship with God. It gives it better contours in our our minds. And in theological terms, a relationship with God follows from our union with Christ by faith. Or to use the language of the New Testament, to be in Christ. What does it mean to have a relationship with God? It means to be in Christ. And what this signifies is that we can read this text not just as a fatherly affirmation spoken over Jesus, but also as a fatherly affirmation spoken over his people because we are in Jesus, because we are in Christ. This tells you that you don't have to live into the narrative of the self-made person. You don't have to rise and fall on the grounds of your performance or your obedience or your emotions. Through union with Christ, we have the assurance of being beloved and well-pleasing to the Father because He sees us in possession 
of all the faithfulness and goodness and loveliness of Christ. This is why the church maintains the exclusivity of Christ as the only hope of being rightly related to God, because apart from him, nobody has even the most remote chance of being well-pleasing to the Father. It's only through our union with Christ. We aren't Christians because we somehow have a moral leg up. We aren't Christians because of any virtues in us. The beauty of, of this passage is a fatherly affirmation spoken over us because of our communion with Christ by faith. Let me further clarify this, though. Many observers of Christianity think of life with God as if it were like that children's game that the little girls in my neighborhood used to play. They would think of the boy they liked, and taking a flower, they would pick off a petal of the flower and say, he loves me. And then they would pick off another petal and say, he loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. And then we keep doing this till they got down to the last petal, and they weren't really sure of where it was going to land. Hear me. This is decisively not what Christianity is like. It's not the case that you do something good and then think, he loves me, and then you sin and think, he loves me not. And so on and so forth, with your confidence of God's love for you being as uncertain as your moral performance. No. Because of the fatherly affirmation of God spoken over Jesus, you say, he loves me. And because of his righteous life lived in your place, you say, he loves me. And because of his death on the cross as your substitute, you say, he loves me. And because of his resurrection from the dead to raise you up from the dead, you say, he loves me. And because of his ascension into glory to sit at the Father's right hand as your great high priest, you say, he loves me. And every moment of every day that you are in Christ, you can and must say, He loves me. When you're suffering, He loves me. When you're anxiously waiting, He loves me. When you're experiencing loss, He loves me. When you fail to live in love once again, He loves me. When death is knocking on your door, he loves me. And when you meet him in glory and you see his smiling face and he shows you his nail-scarred hands, you will be able to say beyond all doubt, he loves me. He loves me. Do you see it in this text? Jesus doesn't force God to love you. Jesus doesn't have to twist the Father's arm to get him to love you. The very sending of Jesus, the Father's gift of his Son, is the evidence that the Father himself, he loves you. The Father was the architect of this plan to wash you in love and restore you in love and send you in love and motivate you by love to finally bring you home to his love. The life 
of following Jesus is a life of affirmation, which incidentally should make the church the most wonderful community to be a part of. Not the place of continual fault-finding and heresy-hunting to try and make sure everyone's on the same script and and hand-wringing about what are those people doing and, and what is it that they're believing and, and, and casting clouds of disapproval over our neighbors and over our fellow community members and, and, and bringing them into suspicion. No, the church is supposed to be the place where we are all the more affirmed in this security and this assurance of our belonging to the Father through union with Christ and not just our belonging, but our belovedness, that we are well-pleasing to him. Will you stop? Will you get off of the performance treadmill? Will you just step off of the hamster wheel of trying to prove your own value and lovability and just receive that fatherly declaration, my faith union with Christ? The life of following Jesus is a life of affirmation. But finally, it's also a life of temptation, which brings us to our final point. Look at verses 12 through 13. After the declaration of God the Father over Jesus, you might have expected verses 12 through 13 to say, Then Jesus went happily skipping off into a life of leisure and comfortable piety. But it's actually the exact opposite. The fatherly affirmation was actually a preparation for the difficult work ahead. If you are to make it through the difficult work ahead, the father says to the son, I must affirm my love for you. And I must consecrate you and pour out my spirit on you. No sooner is Jesus anointed for his mission than the Holy Spirit drives him into the wilderness. He's driven into a desolate place. Think about that. Right after the love of the Father is declared over him, right after this affirmation, he's driven to the place of desolation which is not the way we typically think of how love works. But we need to mark this. There was no one more loved in the Father's eyes than the Son. But even He is driven into the place of desolation for the mission of God. Before His public ministry is inaugurated, He has to undergo the test. And that's why the Spirit drives Him out to the wilderness. He's exposed to the assault of Satan. And, and let me let me develop what's happening here. Mark is creating a different interpretive world from Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke link the baptism and temptation of Jesus to the story of Israel and their sojourn in the wilderness because he they want to present Jesus as the true Israelite, as the one greater than Moses who's going to bring a greater exodus. That's not what Mark is doing. Mark links the baptism and temptation of Jesus to creation to present Jesus as the second or last Adam who brings a new creation. And with this thematic link created, we can compare and contrast the two Adams. 
Both Adam and Jesus were established by God as representatives for humanity. Both would leave a lasting effect on humanity based on their response to the temptation of Satan, the adversary. But the contrast couldn't be more stark. The temptation of Adam takes place in a lush garden. He had a full belly. He enjoyed intimate companionship with Eve without sin marring or disfiguring life in his world. And in that context, Satan tempted Adam and he brought ruin to humanity through his sin. Now flip to the temptation of Jesus, the second Adam. His temptation takes place in a desolate wilderness in a world marred by sin. And his test takes place in the middle of a fast where he goes for a month without food, solely relying upon the, the nourishment of relating to the Father. And he's alone. And it's only after he's in his weak and lowly condition that Satan comes to him. And the point of the test was exactly the same. Would Adam live faithfully before the Father out of simple love for him? Or would he depart? Would Jesus trust in the Father's love and remain faithful in the face of temptation to stray from that love? The words that rang in Jesus' ears before the temptation were, you are my beloved son. And Satan comes to Jesus and says, are you? If you're the son of God, turn these stones to bread. You see, his point of attack is not just the word of God in general. It is particularly the fatherly word of God declaring Jesus beloved and well-pleasing to the Father. And this continues to be his plan of attack against us, y'all. You, you have to know that regardless of how much the Father loves you, Satan hates you and wages war against you. And added to this is the fact that people will despise you and mock you and oppose you in your choice to follow Jesus and to obey all that he has commanded you. They're okay with you obeying some of what Jesus has commanded you. But when you obey all that Jesus has commanded you, people will oppose you and talk about you and treat you poorly. We see here that Satan wants you to view yourself isolated from union with Christ as a standalone. And when you do, you're vulnerable to every bit of guilt, shame, and fear he can heap upon you. If he can get you to see yourself as a standalone, you will fall in his temptations to grasp for control and to hoard your money and possessions and to treat your neighbors as competitors to defeat. But the writers of the New Testament tell us that the gospel is the announcement of a different standing for those who trust in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus stood for us and continues to stand with us, we stand even when we fall. Listen, by faith, you stand in grace, Romans 5. You stand in the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15. You stand in freedom, Galatians 5. You stand against the schemes of the devil, Ephesians 6. We stand firm in one spirit, Philippians 1. 
We stand firm in the Lord, Philippians 4. And one day we will stand before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes, Revelation 7. But where do you stand today on 9-20-2020? Where do you stand? Mark the Evangelist would say to you, consider this life of identification. Consider this life of consecration. Consider this life of affirmation. And consider this life of temptation and follow him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great love that you have for us, that you have affirmed once again through this passage of scripture. We are so grateful for the faithful one, Jesus. We're so grateful to be in union with him, to be, to have our lives hidden in him, to be in full possession of all that is his so that you look on us with pure delight. Lord, we are grateful that you make way for us to explore further what it means to follow you, that you've given us your word. We thank you so much for our friends who are joining us, who are trying to work through issues of life and faith and doubt. We pray, Lord, that you would give them clarity of vision and understanding as to what you are saying about your son. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to follow. We pray that you would help us to be the kind of people who identify with sinners. We pray that you would help us to be the kind of people that is so aware of not only our need of your spirit, but the richness of the spirit who has been poured out and the accessibility that we have to the power of the spirit to keep in step with the spirit. Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear ringing in our ears your fatherly declaration and affirmation over our lives more than we hear the accusations of the evil one, the accusations of people in our lives, the criticisms that we face. Lord, we pray that we would know who we are in union with Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would give us grace as we face temptation. Lord, we pray that you would help us to stand firm we pray that you would help us to see the lies wound up into every temptation and to be able to identify the ways in which those temptations lead us away from the life of love and lead us away from the life of flourishing and lead us away from fruitfulness. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the grace to remember the things we have heard today. And we ask that you would fill us with your spirit so that we may be faithful in our place in this moment. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>